As Josh mentioned, our text this morning is from Ephesians chapter 6. Since this is a one-off sermon, let me provide some background information on the book of Ephesians and the context for our chapter. By all historical accounts, the city of Ephesus was a megacity of the New Testament ancient world. It was a rival city to places such as Rome and Corinth and Athens. It had a population of approximately 200,000 citizens. It was situated on the mouth of the Castor River on the eastern coast of the Aegean Sea. And it was a major port city. In fact, it was considered the greatest emporium of the province of Asia Minor. The city also sat at the western terminus of the main east-west road connecting Roman Anatolia with the province of Asia Minor and all of the eastern provinces of the empire. Like many of the cities that Paul writes to, many cities that are reliant upon trade, Ephesus had a reputation for corruption, immorality, religious diversity, and opulence. At the heartbeat of this city, centered around this great temple, was something known as the Artemisian. It was the city's main religious structure, and it was considered at that time one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Not only did the temple house the cult statue of Artemis, or Diana in Latin, she was known as the Queen of Heaven, and the temple facilitated her worship, and the temple was also a central bank for all of Asia Minor. The Christian church started in Ephesus, and in the churches in the surrounding region, they struggled to be faithful to Christ because of these conditions. Paul, who penned this letter, was likely a prisoner in Rome, and this letter was penned in around 60 to 62 AD. He wrote this book to encourage Christians in Ephesus to hold fast to the apostolic message of salvation by grace through faith, to be unified as one body, and to demonstrate holiness in the church and in home. Because of the prominence of the goddess Artemis and the Ephesians' own attraction to the occult and magic, Paul's closing arguments, his statements, focus on Christ as the head of the church, that he is the supreme power in the cosmos and over all heavenly authorities. It is likely because of the city's particular appetites as to why Paul instructs the Ephesians to put on the whole armor of God. So with that context in mind, let's reread Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 20. Hear the word of God. Paul writes, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. 
In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us go to the Father in prayer. Father, we ask that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart might be pleasing in your sight. And Father, that you would fill me with your Holy Spirit to preach your word. And Father, that you would fill your congregation with the Holy Spirit, that they may receive the word, that we might not just be hearers of the word, but doers as well. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. While I would now consider myself an experienced backpacker, that was not always the case. Though I had grown up hiking in East Tennessee, I didn't go on my first backpacking experience until approximately 20. After the 1996 spring semester at Covenant College ended, my best friend Ben and I drove from Chattanooga to my house in Maryville, Tennessee to plan and prepare our first backpacking trip. He had never been on one either. We purchased equipment, we bought food, and we mapped out our multi-day itinerary. And I can tell you, we were extremely excited. And we were confident, and we felt like we could take on the whole world. We felt like we could take on anything that the great Smoky Mountains would throw at us. But boy, were we naive. For starters, neither of us were in great shape. We had just spent all of our sophomore year sitting around. And the itinerary we planned, wow. We picked the steepest and the hardest trails that the National Park had to offer climbing up the second and third highest peaks in all of the Appalachian Mountains. Too bad we didn't know how to read the contour, li- the contour lines on a map when we planned out this trip. And the weather, boy, were we dumb. We thought early June was going to be warm, but nope. It rained and snowed on us the whole time. I'm so glad that all we brought was blue jeans and cotton shirts while leaving behind our rain jackets and coats and gloves and hats. And our sleeping bags, they were rated for summer weather temps. I mean, after all, it was June, but as I said, it snowed and and rained on us. It was such smart planning by us all around. Plus, we didn't have a water purifier, nor bear spray. So we drank either dirty, unfiltered water or nasty, hot, boiled water as well as tried to avoid bears and animals without that protection. And you need it in the Smokies. I can attest to that. And to top that off, and this was before I bought my own gas-fueled stove after the fact, we used sterno cans to heat our food and water. And at 7,000 feet, it does not cook your food. Our soup was frozen. So delicious. It was the classic example of Campbell's mm-mm good. Suffice to say, we were not prepared for this trip, despite our passion, planning, and purchases. And while I look back on this trip now with fondness and laughter, and you're laughing as well, 
It was a total disaster. But a disaster we could have avoided had we sought out help and asked for advice and listened. Ironically, this first backpacking trip all too easily reflects other aspects of my life, however, both past and present. You see, I don't like asking for help. I don't like relying on others, and I like to do things myself. However, consequently, I find myself at times unprepared and ill-equipped to handle life's hardships. Regrettably, this bleeds over into my spiritual life as well, particularly when I try to deal with my own guilt, shame, and sin under my own power, and apart from God's strength and the church's help. And unfortunately, my brothers and sisters, like me, you probably also struggle in this way as well, by seeking to deal with your own guilt and shame and sin in your own terms and time and by your own means and strength. And I'm here to tell you, like me on that mountain, this makes you vulnerable and easy prey. But in this case, easy prey for the evil one. In Ephesians 6, we find instruction against this kind of approach. After encouraging the Christian Ephesians to believe in and live out the gospel, Paul tells them how and why they are to do this. The how? By putting on the armor of God and being in his strength. The why? Because individually and collectively, they and we are in a spiritual battle against dark forces. This is the same reality for us today. Right now, we are in a spiritual battle. And this battle is not with natural forces as I faced in the Great Smoky Mountains, but with supernatural forces. And these supernatural forces require us to have a united, strong, and godly response. Beloved, because spiritual warfare is an ever-present reality in this fallen world, as Christians, we require God's strength and armor to do battle. So what's our starting point? Where do we begin? Well, I have three points for you this morning, three gospel truths that I want to communicate. And here's our first point. Because spiritual warfare is an ever-present reality in this fallen world, as Christians, we require God's strength and armor in preparation for battle. Look back at verse 10. Paul writes, Finally, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of of his might. Now, after the previous five and a half chapters worth of exhortation, exaltation, encouragement regarding salvation in Christ, seeking unity in the body, and pursuing holiness, Paul opens his concluding remarks with the word finally. Now, apart from being an adverb and a great way to signal the ending of something, this term puts in focus, it puts in reality that none of what Paul just relayed to the Ephesians was possible if they do not rely upon the Lord. So in essence, the word finally, it is a huge blinking neon sign that says, slow down, pay attention. If you want to continue down this path that I discussed of pursuing Christ, then follow, heed these words. Paul's instructions remind Christians, remind us, that living for Christ means preparing for spiritual warfare by being strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. But being strong in the Lord doesn't mean we are strong for the Lord. 
Beloved, being strong for the Lord just equates to doing life within the power of the flesh. And that's what Paul is warning us against, and it's not something we are even able to do. After all, sin has ruined us to a point where we cannot be morally and spiritually strong or righteous enough to engage in spiritual warfare on our own. All of our attempts to do so will only create frustration, anger, despair, pride, and possibly our own downfall. This is why Paul decries his own earthly resume in Philippians chapter 3. He writes this in verses 7 through 9. He says, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness that God of God that depends upon faith. You see, Paul knew his preparation for spiritual battle depended not on his own ability, resources, and strength, but through faith in Christ alone and in Christ's righteousness. So instead of finding strength for the Lord, we find strength in the Lord when we are trusting day by day, hour by hour, and minute by minute in the character of God, in the words of God, and in the promises of God. This means not resting in our own Christian laurels of how long we've been Christians, what physical and spiritual gifts we've received and how we've used them, how well we know scripture and theology, or how we have even served the Lord. No, our strength comes from putting on Christ. It comes from our union with him. Look at the first part of verse 11. Paul states, Put on the whole armor of God. Now, what does Paul actually mean by God's armor? And what does it mean to put it on? And what does that even accomplish? First, the language of putting on God's armor means that this is something given to us for battle. It's not something that we find. It's not something that we create for ourselves. It's something that God furnishes to us. He gives it to us. And second, it's God's armor. And that means it's something that belongs to him and something that he himself uses. So our spiritual armor is actually modeled after his own armor. And the appearance and purpose of God's armor, it's, it's found throughout all the pages of Scripture, but most particularly in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 11, verse 5 says, Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. In Isaiah 49, in the context of the coming Messiah, we read from the prophet, He made my mouth like a sharp sword. And again, in Isaiah 59, we read for the coming Messiah, he put, his, he put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. And this azionic description, of which Paul certainly knew, means that God does not just wear armor, but that God is a warrior who engages in battle for us. We find proof of this in Exodus chapter 15, verse 3. Moses writes this about Yahweh. He says, the Lord is a man of war. And this is in reference to Moses praising God because he recognizes that the Lord has triumphed uh, over horses and chariots. He has given Israel victory over Pharaoh and Pharaoh's army at the Red Sea. And this is an important point here, though. 
Putting on God's armor means that you put it all on and you keep it on. You wear the whole armor of God, not just a part of it or the parts that you want to wear. And in our text, notice that Paul never gives instructions to ever take it off, suggesting a sense of permanency, at least this side of glory. It would have been unthinkable for a Roman legionnaire to remove his chainmail or lower his shield in the face of flaming darts and thrusting swords while in combat. To do so would have been deadly for that soldier and for the rest of the legion. Of course, that could be said, said for the same for us. To wear only portions of God's armor or to wear it part-time could lead to disastrous spiritual consequences. And yet we do that when we only seek Christ during the hard seasons of life, but forget him to our own detriment during easier seasons. That's often when spiritual warfare is at its foggiest and deadliest. So we put on God's armor because it prepares and protects us. Now I know what you're thinking. You're, you're still thinking, well, well Jeff, what, what exactly is it again and what does it do? Well, Paul tells us, look at the second half of verse 11 and verse 12. He writes, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and authorities, cosmic powers during this present darkness, and spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. First, God's armor prepares and protects us because it is spiritual in nature. We are wrestling with spiritual forces, not natural forces. Putting on God's armor includes things like resting in Christ's righteousness for salvation and not in our own works, trusting in God's promise that he will never leave us nor forsake us no matter the severity of our sins. We have to repeat these promises, God's word, back to us. It's asking the Holy Spirit to sustain us during times of failure and trouble, not just during times of faithfulness and triumph. Second, when wearing the full armor of God, we keep it on, we become familiar with the devil and his minions. We are aware of his and their spiritual military tactics. In Greek, diabolu, the term for the devil, when taken as an adjective, means given to malicious gossip. In Hebrew, the term hashatan, the Satan, when taken as a noun, means the accuser or the adversary. In both the Old and the New Testament, the terms, while possibly titles and names, they also serve as descriptions of attributes and behaviors of the evil one. And these attributes and behaviors inform us of the manner in which the evil one conducts spiritual warfare. So the devil's weapons of war center around gossip and accusation. They are word-based, and this is his scheme to distort God's word and our relational standing before and in Christ so that we hide in sin. I mean, that's what happened in the Garden of Eden. Words were twisted and Adam hid. This is why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10, verses 4 and 5, the weapons of our warfare is the divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised up against the knowledge of God, and we take every thought captive to obey Christ. 
So this spiritual war is a war of words. It is a war of truth versus falsehood. It is a war where the souls of men, women, and children hang in the balance. The evil one's gossip and accusations are directed at the church. This is why unity in word, thought, and deed is so important amongst us and why Paul, in every letter, writes about the theme of unity amongst the brethren. Spiritual warfare is present both outside and inside the church. And this is why we put on God's armor to prepare and protect us from all and any enemies, both spiritually foreign and ecclesiastically domestic. We must be on the defensive. And this leads us to our second point, and that is, because, scripture, because spiritual warfare is an ever-present reality in this fallen world, as Christians, we require God's strength and armor for defense in battle. Look at 13 and 14. Paul writes, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore. Our text uses the terminology of stand and withstand four times within verses 11 through 14. And if you're familiar with Ephesians, this is in stark contrast to what he talks about in the previous five chapters. Within chapters one through five, Paul uses the term walk or walked seven times to discuss their calling. So the question is, why the change of language within our chapter? First, Christ is an our divine warrior. He has ultimately won this war I am talking about. And though there are plenty of battles ahead, our response as the church is to resist the devil. That's what James says in chapter 4, verse 7. So our main tactic is to stand in Christ wearing his armor while he finishes his military campaign against the evil one. Second, our walking in pursuit of the things of God will inevitably attract those cosmic powers, rulers, authorities, and spiritual forces in league with the devil. So our calling is mostly about not giving up or conceding ground as we live out the gospel. But make no mistake, when we seek, out, when we seek to live out the gospel, we should anticipate the arrival of an evil day, as stated in verse 13. The more we pursue the things of Christ, the more opposition and difficulties we will face individually and collectively as the church. And when there are tough times, we will be tempted to give up. We'll be tempted to take off the new self and put back on the old self to live again in the flesh. So Paul encourages them and us to stand firm in Christ during these evil days. Remember, Christ has given us himself and everything we need to stand firm. This is why Paul, he mentions it twice, if you didn't catch it the first time, the second time he says in verse 13, put on the armor of God. He wants us to truly understand that we have been given the proper equipment to do this as the church, which is why he intentionally describes the military equipment of a Roman legionnaire all the while associating with God's own spiritual armor. Verses 14 through 17 says, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness 
as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation. It's interesting that the military equipment that Paul spends so much time describing is largely functional, protective, and defensive in nature. A soldier's belt girded up, it closed in his tunic. It secured the breastplate in place, and it was the place to hang the sword's scabbard. And by the way, Paul lists the way the armor is put on and exactly the order that it was put on by a Roman soldier. Without a belt, a soldier's freedom of movement would have been restricted because nothing is secured. And this is true for us, my friends. God's truth allows for security and freedom of movement as the church lives out the gospel. The breastplate, consisting either of chain mail or a metal plate, covered the trunk of the soldier from the neck to the thighs, from front to back, for the purpose of protecting the heart and organs from being pierced. For the church, the justifying and sanctifying righteousness of God protects us from the accusatory attacks of the evil one, while also allowing the church to live in a unified and holy manner before a watching world. And the shoes, they were thick. They were leather sandals, and they were studded with nails. Nails actually pierced through the bottom of the leather. This allowed for good traction, particularly when your enemy is pressing against you in combat. For us, beloved, solid footing allows the church to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, as stated by Peter in 1 Peter chapter 3. So making ready the gospel of peace allows the church, it allows us to withstand evil and the evil one and the spiritual warfare that he wages. Finally, the helmet made of bronze, iron, and leather protected the head, neck, shoulders, and face from glancing blows. It was only one of two items along with the sword handed to a soldier by his armor bearer, and they were put on last. For us, God's provision of salvation gives the church assurance, confidence, and hope that we will be delivered. But how did Paul know all of this, and why would he focus on defensive equipment? Well, as our text, our chapter concludes, it says he is an ambassador chained. It's likely that Paul was actually physically chained to a Roman soldier while in prison. So he would have had plenty of time to observe, question, and talk, and learn from his captors as they did for him. I mean, that's actually the case in Acts 16. Paul interacts all the time with the Philippian jailer. Second, what made the Roman military so formidable was not just their offensive capabilities, but also their defensive capabilities. In many ways for the Romans, the best offense was a good defense. You see, shields not only stop projectiles from piercing one's armor, but when combined with studded shoes, could hold an advancing enemy. In fact, a soldier could stand firm and even push back on the enemy with the pressure created by his own shield. It was literally strapped to the arm. The testudo, or the tortoise formation, was a type of shield wall utilized by the Roman legions in battle. Soldiers would gather together and align their shields to form a packed formation, 
It provided maximum protection on all sides, including above, and for every soldier in every position, and they could push back literally the enemy line. In reality, the legions were well-oiled, unified, defensive machines. The fact that Paul spends all of verse 16 on the shield, I think, is significant. Paul's connection with faith of a Paul's connection of faith with the Roman shield brings to mind all the possibilities that exist when the church is unified and not divided. A unified church using the armor and strength of Christ is able to stand firm against the enemy and to stop his accusations using God's word and prayer. And this leads us to our third and final point this morning, and it is, Because spiritual warfare is an ever-present reality in this fallen world, as Christians, we require God's strength and his armor for offense in battle. Look again at the first half, or the second half of verse 17. Paul says, And the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Now up to this point, Paul has discussed God's armor, Roman armor, and the symbolic connection between the two within the context of the church's call to stand firm in the Lord amidst spiritual warfare. But now we see a shift in discussion on equipment and strategy. The sword of a Roman legionnaire was a short, two-edged, cut-and-thrust weapon designed for combat in close quarters. Because of its size, it was easily maneuverable and more accurate than the Thracian broadsword. As one of only two offensive weapons carried by a soldier, it was indispensable. The second weapon was a spear, but Paul does not mention it in this text. The same can be said about the word of God given to the church by the Holy Spirit. As only one of two spiritual weapons mentioned in our text, it is indispensable for pulsing the evil one. As Josh read this morning, Jesus drove away Satan during his wilderness temptation by quoting scripture back to Satan. Like Jesus, we need to hide God's word in our heart. So it is to our detriment when the church fails to properly wield the word of God. We put ourselves in peril individually and collectively while we ignore God's word and fail to live it out. We end up conceding and giving up ground. And we see this playing out in our own culture and even within the church, because God's word has been compromised. But when we are strong in Christ, when we are unified in Christ, when we are pursuing holiness, the gospel goes forth with great power, and the gates of hell cannot prevail. The writer of Hebrews says this, The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart, I think he was familiar with the Roman gladius. The word of God has the power to bring life, to advance the kingdom of God, and to defend us. My friends, we must take God's word and make it a priority if we want to preserve and grow the church and preserve and grow our own faith. Which is why Paul presses the issue and discusses prayer. He discusses praying in the spirit. Look at 18 and 19. Paul writes, Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints 
and also for me. Whether you, not, whether you see it or not, prayer is also an offensive weapon. It is offensive in nature because its power is tied to the Holy Spirit. It's not tied to the efficacy of our words or the holiness of our lives. And prayer is not something we just utilize for ourselves as we seek forgiveness or ask for something that we lack, though those are godly and appropriate uses for prayer. But prayer is also for the benefit of the church. Since God delights in and uses the prayers of his people, he uses our prayers to advance his kingdom and to push back the darkness. Notice that Paul beseeches the Ephesian Christians to make supplications for all the saints, and he says, also for me. Why does he do that? Well, he says this in 19 and 20, that the words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, boldly, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. You see, Paul understands that it is only by the power of God through prayer that makes it possible for him to speak boldly. It is only by the power of God through prayer that Paul will stand firm in Christ as he preaches to the spiritually lost, as he preaches to the captives. And Paul needs the prayers of God's people so that he is filled with the Holy Spirit. He does not want to speak his own words, but the text says he wants to be given God's words. You see, Paul wants to proclaim the mystery of the gospel accurately and powerfully. And he moves from a defensive battle posture to an offensive battle posture. And that should be the same thing for us, beloved. As saints, we need to pray for the well-being of other Christians. As saints, we need to pray for the work and ministry of other Christians. As saints, we need to pray for the defense of other Christians. And as saints, we need to pray for the bold proclamation of the gospel throughout Christendom. You see, my friends, being strong in the Lord and putting on the whole armor of God prepares and defends us as well as provides us with offensive stratagem in which to stand firm as we engage in spiritual warfare. But to do this, you and I need to put on Christ, who is our divine warrior. He is the one who prepares, defends, and fights for us. And when we put on Christ, as Paul instructs us to do, we can fulfill our call to walk and stand by grace through faith, to be unified as one body, and to demonstrate holiness to a watching world, thereby participating in the defeat of the evil one on an evil day and avoiding the fog of spiritual war. And that, my friends, is the glorious grace of the gospel. Let us bow our heads for prayer. Father, we ask that you would give us your armor, that you would give us your strength, that you would give us your spirit, that we might stand firm against the evil one in an evil day. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, that you fight for us, that we are in you, our hope is in you, and that you do battle on our behalf. Lord, let us make use of the means of grace of scripture and prayer to do your work, that it may be pleasing in our sight. Minister us to this week, help us to live out the gospel of the watching world, and protect us and defend us. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.